0: I'm going to read from the book of Esther as we begin this new series, Uh, this great story, which is kind of near the middle of the Bible, page 501, 501, um, if you'd want to um, follow it. And I'm going to read chapter one, uh, which is where Roger's going to start this evening. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Caesar. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality." By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man exactly what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. And uh, wish me luck here. Mahuman, Biztha, Habana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Here we go again. Kashina, Sheetha, Admartha, Tarshish, Mary, Merus, something like that. Marcina, Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There'll be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes, Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue.
1: Great, good evening everyone, again. Well done to Calvin for, very, very well done for navigating those names, especially as you'd only seen the reading about an hour ago. (laughs) Very impressive. So the Queen says no, nothing to do with the recent invitation to Harry for a quiet tete-a-tete in front of the log fire at Sandringham, nothing to do with that. But rather the start of this new series, uh, interesting series, I hope it is going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Esther. So only two um, books in the Bible are named after women. Ruth is a book about a Gentile woman in a Jewish world. Esther is a book about a Jewish woman in a Gentile world. That's interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) There are two books in the Bible that don't mention God. Song of Songs and Esther. That also is interesting. Yes, it is. In fact, no one even prays in Esther. There's no interest in the law, apparently, God's divine law, there's no miracles. Um, Some people have questioned why, in fact, it's in the Bible at all. What has it got to teach us? Martin Luther spoke very disparagingly about Esther, along with uh, 2 Maccabees, which is a book in the Apocrypha, um, and this is what he said. I am so great an enemy to the second book of Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all, for they have too many heathen unnaturalities. (laughs) That was Martin Luther's view. So why are we looking at it? Why are we looking at the book of Esther? We'll come to that later. But first of all, I would like to set the scene. So Esther begins, as we've heard from that reading, with the phrase, this is what happened. The same formula used in other historical books like Joshua, Judges, and Samuel that precede Esther. In other words, we're dealing here with history. It's not an allegory, it's not a story, this is history. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush, At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Now, thanks to the Greek writer and historian Herodotus, who wrote uh, his history of the Persian Wars, only about 25 years after the reign of Xerxes I, we know quite a lot about Xerxes. We know that he ruled from 486 to uh, 465 BC. And according to Herodotus, he was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings, an ambitious and ruthless ruler, a brilliant warrior, and a jealous lover. And in the Book of Esther, we find him in Susa in modern Iran, Um, not far from the Iraqi border, if you know your geography, in his citadel, which was a strongly fortified palace complex in the highest part of the city, deliberately at the very top, um, A, to protect the king, but also to emphasize his importance in terms of everybody else. And if there was one person who had an inflated sense of his own importance, it was Xerxes I. Herodotus describes a military campaign that Xerxes led, probably shortly after the events described in this chapter here. He constructed bridges out of boats to enable his armies to cross from what we know as modern-day Turkey into Greece. But as his armies were getting ready to cross, a fierce storm blew up and destroyed the temporary bridges. So what did uh, Xerxes do? well, he beheaded the men who were building the bridges and he ordered the sea to be whipped 300 times and shackles to be thrown into the sea to symbolize the sea's subjugation to him. So the general setting of the book of Esther is a megalomaniac in the geographical center of his power. That's what we need to keep in the back of our minds as we go through this book in the coming weeks. And the third verse of chapter 1 places our story very specifically in his third reign, 483 BC. And it's clear from the verses that follow that it's a scene of luxury, of opulence and excess. And I think the first thing that our writer wants us to observe is the king's ostentation, verses 1 to 9. Now commentators are of the view that this is the occasion when Xerxes was mustering the nobles, the officials, the military leaders, princes, uh, provincial governors in Persia to rally support for this forthcoming military campaign against the Greeks. So Persia was in conflict with Greece uh, on its western frontier. Xerxes' father, Darius the First, D- Darius I, had been defeated in his attempt to take Athens. And so the empire was now resting and getting ready for a further campaign against the Greeks. And Herodotus records Xerxes as saying to his assembled nobles, possibly during the very banquet that we have described in Esther chapter one, these words. For this cause, I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It's my intent to bridge the Hellespont, which we may... Uh, no uh, more well as the Dardanelles, and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, or Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he's dead, and it was not granted him to punish them, and I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burnt Athens.'" As for you, this is how you shall best please me when I declare the time for your coming. Every one of you must appear and with a good will, and whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. So for 180 days, Xerxes demonstrates to all and sundry that, the, that he has the funds to lead his armies to war against the Greeks, that he is worthy to wage such a war. And the culmination of this half year of strutting around like a peacock is a one-week banquet, which is over the top, in its extravagance. We talk about being over the, top of, over the top at Christmas, don't we? But that's got nothing compared to the overtopness of this particular seven day feast. Just try and imagine yourself there if you can. It's very difficult. But um, imagine yourself amongst all these nobles in their finery, in um, a setting with stunning decor. Music is gentle and evocative. You can smell these wonderful smells from the tables that are laden with food. You've got wine flowing freely into your golden goblet, which is was a bit like a drinking horn in its shape and its capacity. It each one individually designed, each one beautifully decorated. You can imagine perhaps the uh, the temple guards, palace guards there. In their dazzling armor, you know, all polished up, not there to intimidate you on this occasion. They're not there to monitor your units of alcohol consumption because you can have as much as you want. They're just there to ensure that you have a fantastic time and that everyone enjoys themselves. And then, in parallel with that, in parallel with the king's party, his queen Vashti is hosting her own banquet for the women. No doubt with a comparable level of luxury and ostentation. By the way, as an aside and a fun fact, the Hebrew word translated banquet in the book of Esther occurs 20 times in the book and only 24 times in the rest of the Old Testament. So it's like a signature tune running through the book, just like you know we have a signature tune for a film, a recurring motif. Is is um, this idea of banquet? It will come up again and again. And we, because we're still there, sorry to take you out of that moment, but just bring you back. We're 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 enjoying this this banquet with all of this luxury and excess, and then suddenly there's this turn of events. At the end of this particular banquet, the king anticipates the crowning moment of all of this celebration. It's going to be his own exaltation in the eyes of his loyal subjects. But what do we witness instead? What we witness is the king's humiliation, verses 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine he issues a command to the royal servants to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. Now, we need to understand that it might be offensive to us, but in those days, that command would have been culturally shocking. This is a society where women remain veiled in public, No one may see the features of a woman except her husband. But what is the king asking her to do? What he's basically asking her to parade in front of the inebriated king and his inebriated guests. So at best, it's a bit like asking a woman to sashay along a train carriage full of drunk men coming back from a stag party. It's kind of got that level of offensiveness to it. And the queen says no. I imagine that when that message was delivered to the king, you could have heard a pin drop on the royal marble, if there's royal marble in that palace. I mean, just, just think about it. This is the king who executes bridge builders when a storm blows up. This is a king out to impress. This is a king who wants to persuade men into battle. He's gonna lead them into battle. He wants to now just display this living trophy of his power and glory. And if he can't control his wife, then how can he possibly control the armies marching against Greece? And the queen says no. It's a hugely courageous stand, and it leads to the king's declaration, verses thirteen. Sorry, jumped ahead there. Verse thirteen to twenty-two. The king, we read, became furious and burned with anger. And I kind of imagine that really, when we're reading this for the first time, what we're expecting is that in the next paragraph we're going to read about Queen Vashti's head on the royal chopping block. But no. The king is so blindsided by this flagrant refusal to obey his command that he asks the experts in the law if there's any royal precedent for dealing with such behavior. And so incredibly, what began as a domestic issue turns into a matter of national importance. Mamukan, one of the king's nobles, says, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who've heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Fake news is not a modern thing apparently. And so this proposal is, is put forth and the king's edict is relayed to every corner of the kingdom to every province, to every people group, in every language, these are the words that the author uses, and Queen Vashti is to be replaced, and every man should be ruler over his own household. Now, there's a bit of an irony here, I think, um, in two ways. First of all, Mamukun says that something must be done because the queen's actions will become known. So what do they do? Well, they make the queen's actions known to everyone in everyone's native language. No one can possibly be missed by uh, this this order of the king. But not only that, they are under the illusion that you can change people's attitudes by legislation. When the king's edict is proclaimed, he says all the women will respect their husbands. Well, that's gonna work, isn't it? (laughs) Job done, the men can go home and watch football. That's another problem sorted. But the scene is now set for the rest of the story to unfold. And in the next chapter, our protagonist, Esther, will make an appearance. And we will start to see how, with this one decision to display Vashti at his war council, Xerxes sets in motion a whole chain of events which nearly end in total disaster for the Jewish nation. So why are we spending time in this book? And what's chapter one got to teach us? Well, the answer to the first question is... um, There are a couple of answers, I think. Um, But because we haven't read the book yet, you don't know what they are unless you've read it. But let me just give you a flavor of what's coming up. Because first of all, Esther's in our Bibles and we're gonna be spending time looking at it because it, it is the most extraordinary story of God's providence in protecting his people. So down through the ages, there have been various attempts to wipe out the Jewish nation. Jewish inmates of Auschwitz and Dachau and other concentration camps would write out the Book of Esther from memory and read it in secret because the book of Esther describes in its later chapters how God delivered them from being annihilated. And down through the ages, there have been various attempts to wipe out the church as well. Even in our own enlightened 21st century, there are places in the world where Christians are imprisoned, tortured and martyred for no other reason than their Christian faith. And Esther is a book that breathes hope to the persecuted people of God. It's a book that breathes hope. That's one reason to read it. Secondly, it gives us an insight into how people of faith can live out their faith in a context which is opposed to their faith. So like Daniel and Nehemiah before, Um, and before them, Joseph, Joseph and Moses. Esther is an example of someone that God used to shape a godless culture. Now, I think as we go through, we'll need to be careful about how we interpret some of her words and her actions, because the author doesn't comment on them. The text is silent about her motives about her thoughts, about Mordecai's motives and thoughts when we come to him later on, um, who adopted Esther as his daughter. And if we're honest, some of their actions are, at best, morally ambiguous. So we need to be cautious about um, the the lessons that we draw. But nevertheless, if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, what comes out for us is, is a story that's gonna really help us with our own walk of faith in a cultural context which is sometimes ambivalent but at other times quite hostile to our faith and it'll give us some pointers to how we are to live. Thirdly, Esther is a beautiful illustration of how God is omnipotently present Even when he is most conspicuously absent. So, God is not mentioned once. And yet, the story is this sequence of the most amazing coincidences. Too remarkable remarkable to be explained without the intervention of God. In his book on prayer, Philip Yancey coins the phrase God incidents instead of coincidence. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that. We can't prove that God was present in a situation or a sequence of events, but it was just too coincidental to be otherwise. And maybe some of us need to hear, again, this truth that even when God appears to be absent and appears to be silent that he is working his purposes out. He may not appear present, but he is at work. Those are some of the lessons that I think will come up again and again as we go through the book of Esther. But what about chapter one in particular? Well, again, I'm a bit hesitant about drawing too much out of chapter one because I think it's really a chapter that sets the context for what follows. Chapter one is about making sure that we know that we're living in, that this story is set in the times of a, um, a king who is volatile and dangerous um, in a kingdom which is hostile to Jewish faith. It's, Esther one is a set up chapter for that purpose. Um, but there are some specific lessons that we could at the very least reflect on, whether they were intended by the author as lessons for us or not. There are things that we could reflect on. So first of all, maybe an obvious one, um, the dangers of excess, particularly excess of alcohol and how it impairs decision-making, how it puts other people in embarrassing situations, and how it leads to rash outcomes. You know, the Bible provides a surprising number of examples of individuals who have drunk too much, like King Belshazzar in Daniel 5 and Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, Amnon in 2 Samuel 13, and all of them suffer as a result of having too much alcohol. I know it's an obvious thing to say, but I think that's one of the things that we could reflect on. All of this happens because a king has drunk too much wine. A second thing we could reflect on is Queen Vashti's courage in drawing a line beyond which she would not cross, even at the risk of her life. Timothy Keller says that courage comes from wanting something more than your own safety. And that's definitely the case with Vashti. She considered something more valuable than her own life. Again, the author doesn't spell out what that is. Why she said no. One assumes it was something to do with her dignity, but for whatever reason, she said, there is a a point beyond which I am not willing to cross and she had the courage to stick to that. We could reflect on that. A third one, which you may find a bit quirky, um, is what I'm gonna call serpentine shrewdness, or Mamukin's political savvy. So I've, I've pointed out the ironies in the decree that was made and so on and so forth, but there is something he does do, which is from a, a human perspective, actually quite smart. So, and Jesus used the phrase, didn't he? As shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Hence my phrase, serpentine shrewdness. Because what Mamuken does is he takes something that is really between the king and the queen, and he says, actually, it's not about you, king, this is something much bigger than that. It's about the whole kingdom. It's about all of your 127 provinces. It's about every man. This is what's at stake here. And so instead of allowing the attention just to, the spotlight just to fall on the king, Mamucum rather cleverly makes it into this big empire issue. And so to a certain extent, it saves the king's embarrassment. I'm not saying that was the right thing to do, but as I say, Jesus did teach us to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And we don't often think about what that actually means in practice. So a challenge to you, as I've challenged myself, is is this an example of doing that? Or is it just a bit of political game playing? There'll be other occasions, over the book of Esther when we see other people making similarly smart decisions. So all any of those things you might take away from the, book of, uh, from the first chapter of Esther one. But there's one thing that doesn't come out um, very obviously, but it's, it's the one thing that I have taken away more than anything else from this chapter. Um, and it's this, that as I've stood back and thought about Xerxes and his kingdom, what really came home to me was the contrast between Xerxes' kingdom and Christ's kingdom. So in Colossians, Paul talks about God rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So that the New Testament has a lot to say about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so what I've been doing is just thinking about what is is the kingdom of Xerxes like and what kind of a king is he like, as opposed to what is the kingdom that we are called to be part of, that we are brought into? And what is the king like that we are serving? And here are some thoughts. Um, First of all, something that wouldn't come out um, at all, unless you are familiar with Greek, I'm certainly not. Um, But Xerxes' name in Hebrew, Ahashwerosh sounds like headache in English. Christ's name is Jesus, Saviour. Xerxes was proud, Christ is humble. Xerxes was volatile, Christ is consistent. Xerxes was violent, but Christ is gentle. Xerxes cared only for his own reputation, but Christ cares for the dignity of each one of us. Xerxes didn't exercise restraint, but Christ never loses control. Xerxes demanded respect through royal decree, but Christ earns respect through his love for the church. Xerxes cast out his disobedient wife, but Christ never casts out his bride, the church. Xerxes lived to be served, Christ lives to serve. Xerxes' kingdom was extensive. Pakistan in the east, to Turkey in the west, down to northern Sudan, but Christ's kingdom is global and eternal. So all of that, to me, boils down to this, that Xerxes was a king worthy of a no, but Christ is a king worthy of a yes. And if we haven't yet made that decision tonight, then maybe tonight is the point at which we say for the first time to Jesus the king a yes instead of a no. You know, down through the ages men and women have worshipped gods like Xerxes, your proud and capricious Greek gods like Zeus and Hera and Hades, your self-serving vain Norse gods like Odin, Thor and Loki, violent gods, lustful gods, gods that required payment for services, gods that couldn't be trusted. But I'm so thankful that Christ, the one true God, He's like none of the gods of man's imagination and like none of the current rulers of the world's superpowers or indeed the past ones. Amen.